If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you would open up to Hebrews chapter 4 while you're standing, turn to Hebrews 4 this morning. Continuing our study through the book of Hebrews this Reformation Sunday, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, God's holy word reads, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray together, church. Father, thank you for your word for the sanctifying work of your word, for the encouragement we receive in your word. Oh God, we ask that you would help us this morning to have ears that hear, hearts that receive, and wills that are aligned with yours. Help us, oh God, from all the distractions that battle for our attention. Speak, oh Lord, now through your word to your people and graciously help us to be doers of what your spirit teaches us. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated, beloved. <clears throat> Temptation is real. How many of you can attest to that. Or I literally just saw five heads nod and the rest of you just sat there like none. So the five of us are together and isolated. Only the five of us are experiencing temptation. Temptation's real, church. You all know that whether or not you nodded your head or not, whether you jumped out of your seat and raised your hand, it is actually from the moment you wake up, you are tempted. You're tempted right when you wake up to be busy about your own business and not about God's business. You're, you're tempted immediately to obey your own thoughts and your own agenda and not God's word. You're tempted to follow the world and not follow Christ. You're tempted to exalt yourself higher than those that are around you. It is temptation after temptation, and we can go on and on. But not only are we tempted, at times we give in to those temptations and we sin. So the question I have is, what are we to do? We know that sin is wrong. We know that it is rebellion against our holy God. We know how we ought to live. And yet we are bombarded by temptation to sin all the time. And compounding the problem, we know the truth that God sees everything. As you have your Bibles open in Hebrews 4, 14, Look back just one verse of what we studied through last week. Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mean, that verse alone must strike fear into the heart of every person. Look at it again. 
fear should be struck into every one of us, that God knows everything, everything. But God, but God has wonderful news for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. He's inspired the author of Hebrews to once again exhort us to encourage us and to strengthen our faith. This morning, the title of the sermon is Holding Fast by Drawing Near. And we're looking at this handful of verses that begins this new section in Hebrews. It is the second of three major discourses in the book of Hebrews. It begins here in verse 14 of chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. And this part this morning, verses 14 through 16, introduces the theological discourse on Christ being high priest that we will see our next time in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. And so next time we will dig deeper into that as we look to Hebrews chapter 5. But up to this point in our study, we know the author has already argued that Jesus is superior than angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. And now in this part of his letter, he begins to argue that Jesus is superior to every high priest that has ever served, including Aaron himself. But before we jump into this passage this morning, we must look at the immediate context to properly understand and to apply God's word this morning. Those of you that have been with us, you know that through the first 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 4, the author gives us an exhortation to learn, to learn from the Exodus generation, those who failed to enter God's rest. And he gives us a, a terrifying reminder about all that God had done on their behalf, and yet they were still guilty of unbelief. If you look back to Hebrews chapter 4, the opening verse we read, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so though this is an exhortation, this, this letter of Hebrews is a book of exhortation. This also serves as a warning. It's a warning here against having much knowledge and still failing to enter the ultimate rest that God has for his people. What does that mean? What is the implication of that? That means you can have a deep, deep theological understanding and still not have a saving faith. And that such a passage should be alarming to us. Regarding this passage of Scripture, Martin Luther said that the author first terrifies us and then he comforts us. Luther commented here how it's terrifying to think that we could fail to believe and fail to enter into the rest that the Lord has so graciously provided what does that mean? It means we can know so much and still miss everything. But the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews not to leave us in that place of fear, but instead to bring us comfort through more exhortation. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus is declared as a great high priest. And there are two imperatives that come along with that. In verse 14, we see that we are to hold fast. And in verse 16, we see that we are to draw near. And both of those imperatives, verse 14 and 16, are grounded in the truth about Christ that we find in verse 15. Remember, duty is always tied to doctrine. 
It's every imperative in the scripture. The, the things that we are to do always rests on the indicative of what Christ has done or is still doing. It's not by our grace. It's by his grace. It's not by our works. It's by his. And so as we study these exhortations this morning, we see that we will be encouraged to hold fast. To hold fast and to draw near. To hold fast by drawing near. And as we do that, we'll fix our attention on three aspects of Christ found in these verses. We will see his home, verse 14. We'll see his heart in verse 15. And we'll see his help in verse 16. His home, his heart, his help. And so let's begin together in verse 14, his home. We see in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We see this section begins with the word since. It indicates a continuation of the topic of the high priesthood of Jesus, which, by the way, was alluded to in the very opening of this letter. If you flip back a page, I'm sure you'll see chapter 1 at the end of verse 3. We read in the very opening that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is referring to Christ's priestly duty. And then even more direct, not just alluding to it, but stating it, if you look over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we see Christ is referred to as a merciful and faithful high priest. We read, therefore, he had to be made light his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And lastly, flip over to chapter 3, the opening verse, where he is called the high priest. Therefore, holy brothers, verse 1 of chapter 3, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we see this theme beginning, and it's going to continue to run as the dominant theme all the way through chapter 10 of his priesthood. And so first we must recall, and we'll do a deeper dive next time we are in Hebrews together, but we have to recall the work of the high priest in the Old Testament. That once a year the high priest entered the innermost room of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, in the very presence of God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would offer first a sacrifice for his own sins, and he would cleanse himself with water before entering God's presence. And to avoid punishment, the high priest brought blood of an animal sacrifice, which he sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And when that blood was offered, God's wrath was propitiated. That is, it was turned away from the people's sin. But all of that that was instituted, all of the priestly work pointed forward to Christ, whom the author here refers to as the great high priest. This word great means to exceed a standard. Jesus exceeded the standard that was set up for the high priest in that he was both the priest and the offering. He offered his own blood, his own shed blood, which is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath forever. Hebrews chapter 9, we read about this in verse 12, Hebrews 9, 12. Speaking of Christ, as he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Done once and forever. It's done. As the divine son of God, his sacrifice has infinite worth. His sacrifice accomplished and achieved a finished atonement unlike the ones offered by Aaron, which had to be repeated daily. Jesus is the great high priest. He's unlike any other high priest that has ever lived 
and died. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the grave and now lives forever in the presence of God. We see in verse 14 of Hebrews 4 that Jesus has passed through the heavens. This most likely refers to his ascension as he rose through the clouds and through the skies and into heaven, into the presence of the Father. This is where our high priest lives today. His home is with the Father. That should bring every one of us who trust in Christ great hope. That our high priest is with the Father. It means that he has conquered the grave, that he was raised and he ascended to be with the Father. And that all who trust in him will also be raised to dwell with him forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, we read that knowing he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Jesus was the first fruits. And because he was raised from the grave, we have confidence that all we who trust in him will be raised as well. You know, Jesus spoke some comforting words in John chapter 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Beloved, that should bring a hallelujah and an amen. That where he is with the Father, that we too will be there. The fact that Jesus has passed through the heavens and now is in the presence of the Father gives every believer great hope that we will one day be joining him. It is what drives us when we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. But there's also additional hope given that Jesus is in the presence of the Father. Recall when we look back to the opening of this letter in chapter 1, verse 3, that after making purifications for sins, we read, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, that is something that no other priest could do, to sit down. No priest's work was ever finished, but our great high priest, after offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, he sat down. Why? Because it was finished. No more sacrifices ever needed to be made. We read this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Hebrews 10, 12, we read, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. But that doesn't mean he is sitting down and there is not still work to be done. We know that he still serves and he continues to serve as our mediator, our intercessor. We've looked at it before and quoted it before, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. We also read in the same letter of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7 verse 25. We read, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you think about Christ, no wonder the Bible speaks about him as being a treasure like no other. Not only did he take on flesh so that he could live a sinful life and fulfill God's perfect law on our behalf, on behalf of all who would believe, but he also would die as their substitute, satisfying the full wrath of God that was against us. And then he rose from the grave. 
and ascended back to the Father, where he serves as our advocate before the Father. For everyone who repents and trusts in him, Jesus secures their salvation from beginning to end. This is our great high priest. And it's for that matter that it's not a wonder that the exhortation comes here in verse 14 to let us hold fast to our confession. This word hold fast, it means to grasp or to seize something without letting go. Some of us would call that white knuckling it. Not letting go, not giving up. We see the same word in Revelation. Jesus speaks it. He says in Revelation 2.25, Only hold fast what you have until I come. Again, Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And so this exhortation is, let us hold fast to our confession. It means do not let go of your faith. Cling to Jesus as your great high priest. Hold on to your confession of him. It means press into following him. Do not turn. Do not waver. Do not veer off course. Do not loosen your grip. Or as the writer of Hebrews has already warned, do not drift away from him. Much like the original recipients of this letter were experiencing, circumstances and, and difficulties can tempt us to take our eyes off of Christ. Am I alone in this? Okay, just making sure. How often does that happen to us? Our eyes go from Christ, something happens, and boom, it's right on that thing. And we forget that quickly. You know, circumstances and difficulties can arise even within the walls of the church amongst God's people. It's not just things that happen outside the church, but things that happen inside the church. The reality is that other brothers and sisters that are supposed to help you strive in the faith that they will let you down at times. They will disappoint you at times. And why is that? Because they are sinners saved by grace. And as such, they fight against their flesh. But you know who will never let you down? Who will never leave you nor forsake you? Who will never disappoint you? Jesus. Jesus. He is the one here that encouraged you to hold fast to him. Why? Because he's holding fast to you. If and when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, your faith is strengthened. And looking at all the riches that are yours in Christ Jesus will help you hold fast to your confession. Christ has conquered the grave, and he has gone to prepare a place for you. And while he is there, he continues to make intercession for you. Oh, the greatness of our Savior. Hold fast to him. Secondly, what we see in this passage this morning, we see his heart. In verse 15, if you look at Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This verse here is the foundation of these verses. From 14 through 16, everything points to here. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he has a published work in 1651 titled The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. That entire work of Goodwin's is a deep probing on this very verse, Hebrews 
And Goodwin states that, quote, the very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven, end quote. It is this very verse that we get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. His heart towards those who trust in him. And what do we find as we look and we see his heart towards his people? We see a heart of grace. We see that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, in our temptations. This word sympathize, it means to suffer along with. It means to co-suffer. That is what our great high priest does with us. It means that the heart of Christ is such that he shares the pains, he shares the sufferings, he shares the discomforts of his people. I mean, ponder this truth, beloved, that Jesus, now in heaven, is so intimately fixed on you that he feels all of your woes. I'm not making this stuff up. It says God revealing himself to us, revealing his son and the heart of his son towards those who are his. Think about it. He feels everything. And we see why. We see here it's because he came to earth clothed in flesh to live as a man. And in his humanity, he suffered when tempted. And what does that mean? It means now Jesus intimately understands the human experience. We read back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, if you want to turn back a page and look at it. Hebrews 2, 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that great news? Isn't it glorious news? But how is this so? I mean, we know that Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully human. Theologians refer to that as hypostatic union. And, and as he came and he took on flesh, in his humanity, he knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to face temptation. In every respect, he has been tempted. But what do we read there? Yet without sin. He, he has been tempted in every general way that we are tempted. This doesn't mean that he needs to experience every individual temptation in order to sympathize with us. One commentator put it this way. He said, quote, he did not experience the specific temptations peculiar to women or married people or the elderly. Neither did he experience the temptations that come from having already sinned. But he did experience the essential temptations that cover, and in this case, supersede whatever we may experience, end quote. Jesus experienced all the areas of temptation that are found in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This means that nothing is shocking to him. It means we can come to him and not be ashamed of the temptations that we are fighting. He has been tempted in every way. And he has been tempted beyond any way that we can fully understand. You might think, how so? How has he been tempted beyond? I mean, Robert, you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm fighting against. I know he's gone through more. Remember Hebrews 2.18, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. And think about this. Jesus did not sin. It means he never gave in to that temptation. Now, I don't want you to go someplace you ought not go in your mind, but if you consider temptation, you think about a fight. 
And in that fight, often we get weary. And we give in to that fight. Jesus did not. C.S. Lewis comments about how someone might object here saying, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. Listen to Lewis's response to this objection. Lewis says, quote, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like after an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. End quote. Most of us, if not all of us, don't know what it's like to go 12 rounds fighting against temptation. After maybe one round or even two rounds, we throw in the towel. And in his humanity, Jesus went all 12 rounds every single time. And because he suffered so much when tempted, he has an unequaled capacity for sympathy. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end. He was tested like we are, and he is a sympathetic high priest. He is sympathetic of our struggles, of our challenges, of our hurts, of our pains. You know, the fact that Jesus was tempted yet without sin has caused much discussion on whether Jesus was able not to sin or if he was not able to sin. The theological terms are peccability and impeccability. Those who argue the peccability position believe that Jesus was able not to sin, meaning he had the ability not to sin. And those who argue the impeccability position believe that Jesus was not able to sin, meaning he did not have that ability to sin. So now as we pause here and you go, okay, so what is it? Now that you presented us with that, what do we do with it? Well, we have to think about Jesus himself. He was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. And being fully God and fully human means he could not violate either. And being fully God means that he is not able to sin. A.W. Pink put it this way, quote, he said, the man of Christ, or excuse me, the man Christ Jesus was the only holy one of God and therefore he could not sin. But were not Satan and Adam created without sin? And did not they yield to temptation? Yes. But the one was only a created angel and the other merely a man. But our Lord and Savior was not a created being. Instead, he was God manifest in the flesh. He was not only impeccable God, but he was impeccable man. End quote. Jesus Christ didn't sin. He couldn't sin. He had no capacity to sin. And you go, well, see, there it is. How does he know what I'm going through? I have the ability. Well, you need to understand this. That doesn't minimize his sufferings from temptation. It actually maximizes them. They were all the more dreadful because as God, he would not and he could not fall. And therefore, in his humanity, he had to endure every temptation to the end. Think about him in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we read, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
It's a rhetorical question, but have you ever fought temptation like that? I don't think any of us have. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 4. Encourage us to look at Christ's example in fighting temptation. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we read, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, so what's the point? What's the point of all of this? It has everything to do with the heart of Christ towards sinners. That he knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our sufferings. I mean, consider all that he went through. And understand how he now sympathizes with you. And he now welcomes us those who believe in him, to come to him in the midst of temptation and even when we fall into temptation. That he will comfort us. He will strengthen us. And if we go to him in temptation, he will keep us from stumbling. Beloved, we need to understand that is the heart of Christ for us. And when we understand that is the heart of Christ towards us, we will run to him quicker when we are tempted. We will run to him quicker when we fall into temptation because we know his heart and we know that he delights in us, that he died for us, that he lives to make intercession for us. And so it may, may be the, the heart of Christ that draws you in the midst of your difficulties, your weaknesses, and your temptations. So we've seen his home, we've seen his heart, and now thirdly, we see his help. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. So it's with that understanding of his heart towards us that we're now exhorted to draw near to him. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does it mean exactly here to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace? It means to come to God with boldness. That we're, we're exhorted here to approach him boldly entrusting him with our prayers because of the kind of priest that he is, because of the Savior of who he is. Remember, he is our high priest. His work has reconciled us back to God, which means we can approach him freely. We no longer have to hide from him. We don't have to flee like Adam in the garden. And the veil that was barring us from God's presence is torn because of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And though our sin once barred us from the presence of God, all who have placed their trust in Christ now have his atoning work applied to them forever. It is finished. To come in confidence, to come with confidence to Christ means that we do not have to fear him or fear the fact that he knows everything about us. It means that he has paid the price for all of it, all of our sin. And now in full reliance on his finished work, we come to him confidently. He has done it all no longer having to come in fear. We, we don't approach him reluctantly and worried about what he might or how he might react. We're exhorted to draw near to Christ because he knows everything. He knows the challenges that you face. He knows the temptations that you fight. He knows the sins that you have fallen into. And yet his heart is one that sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, in your temptations. And thus we are exhorted here in verse 16 to draw near to his throne of grace. 
How many times in temptation or even in sin do we feel ashamed to go to God in prayer? We feel, how, how can I take this to him? The, the thoughts that I've been thinking or, or the words that I've been speaking or the actions that I've just done, how do I go to him in prayer? And so we struggle within ourselves to go to Christ. I want you to listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes it. Again, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First thing I want you to see, beloved, is it's a throne of what? Then why do we shrink back? Why do we somehow think it's now a throne of judgment? It's a throne of justice. For his people, it is a throne of grace. God's people draw near to a throne of grace. Get that in there. Like, it's a throne of grace. It will help you as you are fighting temptation, as you fall into sin, to be reminded it is a throne of grace. I'm to run there. And I'm to run quickly to him. And what do we receive? What do we receive when we go there, when we come to him? We see in this verse that we receive mercy and we find grace. Listen, we we don't get a scolding. We don't get the, didn't I tell you not to do that? (laughs) How many times have I told you? As earthly parents, we sometimes fall into that. Have I not instructed you? But when we look at our Lord and we see that there's grace upon grace, it is not a scolding. It is love. It is an embrace from our loving Savior. There is no wagging of a finger saying, how could you have thought that? How could you have said that? How could you have done that? No, what we get is we get a sympathizing Savior who understands our plight. The Savior who is ready to respond with mercy and grace. And when is that administered by God? If you look at the end of verse 16, in time of need. It is important to note that receiving God's grace in the midst of our trial or in the midst of temptation does not mean deliverance from it. God's grace is the ability to endure temptation. It's to persevere through it. And so his grace is not about relief. It's about empowerment. It's about going all 12 rounds. So now that we know that, it's how we frame our prayers. We often want God just to remove us from here and take us over here, get us out of this situation and bring us over here. But instead, his grace gives you the ability to endure through it. As we get molded and shaped into the image of Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Not escape it, endure it. Beloved, every single one of us needs help. We are all needy recipients of grace. And yes, we all need help. And the reality is that none of us deserve the help that we need. Yet we have a great high priest who pours out mercy and grace to help in time of need. I want to read you a lengthy Spurgeon quote because what better for our souls than to hear some Spurgeon in addition to God's word. Spurgeon will point to God's word entirely throughout it. And so Spurgeon says, quote, To come before a throne, how unfit we are. We that are all defiled with sin within and without. 
Dare any of you think of praying were it not that God's throne is a throne of grace? If you could, I, I confess I could not. An absolute God, infinitely holy and just, could not in consistency with his divine nature answer any prayer from such a sinner as I am. Were it not that he has arranged a plan by which my prayer comes up no longer to a throne of absolute justice, but to a throne which also is the mercy seat, the propitiation, the place where God meets sinners through Jesus Christ. Oh, I could not dare say to you, pray, not even to you saints, unless it were a throne of grace. Much less could I talk of prayer to you sinners. But now I will say this to every sinner here, though he should think himself to be the worst sinner that ever lived, cry unto the Lord and seek him while he may be found. A throne of grace is a place fitted for you. Go to your knees. By simple faith, go to your Savior. For he, he it is who is the throne of grace. It is in him that God is able to dispense grace unto the most guilty of mankind, end quote. In perfect Spurgeon style, to refresh our souls with the goodness and glory of Christ, that this Jesus, our great high priest, has opened up the holy of holies to us through his death upon the cross. That we do no longer, we no longer need an earthly priest to go into the holy place on our behalf any longer. For all of us who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, we can now go boldly. We're exhorted to come confidently to the throne of grace because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus. We can now come to God. We can come and cry out for his mercy and for his grace in the midst of every trial and in the midst of every temptation. Beloved, this morning what we have received from this passage in Hebrews is an encouraging word. We have seen that Christ has gone before us and is now seated at the right hand of God. That his atoning work is finished and he now lives to make intercession for his people. We have seen his heart towards us, that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, and that we see here in verse 16 that we can go to him confidently, to his throne of grace, to receive help. Beloved, this is great encouragement for our souls. The encouragement is keep your eyes on Christ. This will keep you striving in the faith. You can be reminded of his home, his heart, and his help. But we're to hold fast by drawing near, to come quick to Jesus, to no longer sit and wallow and say, How could I have even thought that? Or how could I have said that? Or how could I have done that? Jesus knows. That's why he died on the cross. We don't have to wallow in self-pity. We don't have to elevate our sin that somehow that's greater than the grace of God. We need to flee to him, run to him. We need to flee from temptation, run to him. We need to come to him quickly. He already knows what we're struggling with. To not come from him is not hiding it from him. But to bring it to him and know the grace of God that is offered through Jesus Christ to know that he has paid the penalty for all of that. He knows the details about your temptations and your sins more than you do. He knows the finest of details. And yet Christ ready, is at the ready to offer compassion, mercy, and grace as you come to him. So my question to you, beloved, is are you struggling? Are you fighting against temptation to sin? Because it's not unique to just you. How about your relationships? Those of you who are younger and at home, how is your relationship with your parents? 
How are you following and obeying your parents, respecting them? Siblings, how are you treating one another? Are you struggling and wanting to think that you're better than them, smarter than them, exalting yourself higher than them? Parents, how are you treating your children? With the same patience and grace that our great high priest gives to us? Bestowing the same mercy and grace when they blow it? Those of you that are married, I too am a married man. I have a great wife, but she is a sinner, as I am. And marriage gives us opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God to our spouse. They are a sinner, much like us. And just as we are needy recipients of the grace of God, we are now to bestow that onto them, to care for them. Are you single and struggling in your singleness? Struggling with contentment of being single? Struggling in relationships with others? Run to Christ. Run to the one that knows all of those struggles more than you do and where there is grace to be received from his hand. Every single one of us are tempted as we started off this morning from the moment we wake up and yet we have a great high priest that says, come to me. Come to me and receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Before we close in prayer this morning, let's bow our heads, let's reflect on how God is ministering to us through his word this morning. Father, what an appropriate work of your word, empowered by your spirit to our lives right now as we stop to reflect on what you are teaching us that we would take time to run to the throne of grace. So, Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would work it deep into our hearts so that we would believe it, so that we would hold fast to Jesus by drawing near to the throne of grace. Oh, God, remind us often of Christ's heart for us so that we would be quick to come to the throne of grace in times of difficulty and temptation. May this be the fruit, the, the evidence of our faith, our running to Jesus in prayer with confidence that we will find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. Oh, you are so good and gracious and kind to us, and we praise you for that. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen.